Hello, air wavers. Yeah, not too sure about that one. Maybe I'll stick to our usual opening. Hello, medical students. Welcome to our second pharmacology concept episode. Today, I am privileged to be joined by Peru for this episode, and we are going to cover my absolute favorite topic, neuromuscular blockers. And they can be quite difficult to understand. There are even whole textbooks written about neuromuscular physiology and neuromuscular blockers, but today, in typical airwave style, we're going to break it down for you in our short 20-minute episode. The three objectives for today's episode are one- understand why we use neuromuscular blockers in anesthesia, two, the two types of neuromuscular blockers, how they work and how they are reversed, and three, some considerations when choosing a neuromuscular blocking agent. Hi, everybody. It's good to be back here. For those of you who don't know me yet, my name is Peru. Neuromuscular blocking agents are used to chemically paralyze skeletal muscle. Can you think of why we might want this during surgery? Well, there's really two big reasons. The first one is that you want to have paralysis of the vocal cords, which can help facilitate intubation. And second of all, paralysis can help operating conditions for the surgeons by relaxing the skeletal muscle. So for example, in a patient undergoing laparoscopic surgery, you want to inhibit spontaneous breathing. Or in patients undergoing orthopedic surgery, you might need, uh, muscle con- you might need to prevent muscle contraction to facilitate instrumentation. All said, though, it's important to remember that neuromuscular blockers have no effect on pain or consciousness, only on the muscles. And then I think our first question becomes when we say paralyzes skeletal muscle is, how exactly do you do this? And I think to answer this question fully, we need to understand how the muscle works normally. I'm going to do my very best to explain this in words, but for all my visual learners out there, I highly, highly recommend looking at the diagram in the show notes. But put simply, skeletal muscle produces movement through voluntary contraction. This all begins in the nervous system with an action potential traveling down a nerve fiber to the neuromuscular junction, which is a space where the nerve meets the muscle. At the neuromuscular junction, the neurotransmitter acetylcholine is released from the presynaptic vesicle into the synaptic cleft following an action potential. The acetylcholine then binds to a nicotinic receptor on the skeletal muscle, resulting in muscle contraction. You can think of ACH simply as your go signal. After contraction, ACH is then rapidly degraded by the enzyme acetylcholinesterase within the synaptic cleft or it's reabsorbed into the presynaptic vesicle. So if you didn't catch all that, remember these basics. The action potential triggers the release of acetylcholine, which then binds to the nicotinic receptor on the muscle, causing muscle contraction. As acetylcholine is degraded by acetylcholinesterase, the muscle can begin to respond to stimulation again. Neuromuscular blockers act by interfering with the acetylcholine signaling mechanism at the neuromuscular junction. Involuntary muscles, such as cardiomyocytes and smooth muscles, however, aren't really affected by this process. There are two types of neuromuscular blockers that work by different mechanisms to produce paralysis. These are non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers and depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. Let's start with non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. An example of this is rocuronium. These agents act as competitive antagonists with acetylcholine and bind to the nicotinic receptors. However, unlike acetylcholine, they don't cause muscle contraction. Uh, 
So you can think of it as like the non-depolarizing muscle agents will block the nicotinic receptors and produce paralysis by preventing the acetylcholine go signal. These agents are typically categorized as short, intermediate, or long-acting. Now, conversely, depolarizing neuromuscular blockers, like succinylcholine, act similarly to acetylcholine. They bind to nicotinic receptors and cause muscular depolarization. However, they aren't metabolized by acetylcholinesterase. That means that the binding of, of succinylcholine to the nicotinic receptor is prolonged compared to acetylcholine, resulting in an extended depolarization and preventing acetylcholine from causing any further contraction. Okay, so now that you have a basic idea of the two types of neuromuscular blockers and how they act to produce paralysis, you probably want to know some clinical pearls, like how long they take to onset and how you can actually reverse this paralysis in the OR. So starting with the first kind of concept, the time to paralysis, with typical intubating doses of non-depolarizing agents, so this was agents like rocuronium, the onset can take anywhere from 90 seconds, in the case for rocuronium, to 2 to 3 minutes with pancuronium. These drugs typically last for anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes to the longer acting ones acting anywhere from 60 to 120 minutes. In the OR, we typically will use rocuronium given its quick onset, predictable duration of action, and general safety profile. Now, the second concept, which is very important to understand as a medical student in the OR, is how to reverse the actions of non-depolarizing neuromuscular blockers. Most specifically, you'll see only use rocuronium. And we can do two things to, the to re reverse the paralysis. One, increase the concentration of acetylcholine in the neuromuscular junction to overcome the competitive blockade. Or two, decrease the amount of the non-depolarizing agent, in other words, the amount of rocuronium bound to the nicotinic receptor. So the first concept was increasing the amount of acetylcholine. How are we going to do this? So remember that rocuronium is a competitive antagonist. So by increasing the amount of acetylcholine, you can outcompete the blockade. To do this, we act to inhibit acetylcholinesterase, which is the enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine. And we do this with a drug called neostigmine. So by blocking this enzyme, we can increase the ACH. Unfortunately, neostigmine is not selective for the neuromuscular junction and acts to in increase acetylcholine throughout the body, which also acts at the muscarinic receptors, leading to side effects such as bradycardia. So in order to counteract this, we typically will co-administer glycopyrrolate which is a muscarinic acetylcholine receptor antagonist to avoid some of these negative side effects. Now, moving into the second method of reversal, which is also a newer method of reversal, and specifically more for agents like rocuronium and vecuronium, we can use a drug called Sugamidex, which directly encapsulates and inactivates these agents, avoiding the need for neostigmine. It also provides a faster and more reliable reversal. This sounds like a wonder drug, right? I'd have to agree with you there. But unfortunately, its cost is one of the downsides and probably precludes its use um, in clinical practice. But hopefully in the near future, we'll see more usage at our sites. Now, let's switch gears to depolarizing agents. Succinylcholine is currently the only depolarizing agent used in clinical practice. It has a quick onset of about 30 seconds, and its effects typically resolve over 5 to 10 minutes. 
succinylcholine is quickly hydrolyzed by cholinesterases found in the plasma. And surprisingly, 90% of it is actually broken down before it even reaches the neuromuscular junction. Given this rapid breakdown, we don't actually require reversal agents. Catch all that? We know it's a lot. (laughs) Feel free to rewind and listen to any parts of this episode again if you need a quick refresher. But hopefully now you can understand the basic mechanisms and classes of the two neuromuscular blocking agents and a little bit about them. So now we're going to chat about why you might choose one agent over another. And this is probably where all the good pimping material is. So definitely take a close listen. To keep things as straightforward as possible today, we'll go through three considerations. One, the duration of your planned induction, which simply boils down to are you doing a rapid sequence induction or not? Two, the route of excretion. And three, adverse reactions and contraindications. Our first consideration is the duration of intubation, and practically this boils down to whether or not you're doing a rapid sequence induction. If you need to intubate somebody quickly, I don't think anybody's going to realistically jump for the pancuronium, um, where that the onset of that takes about three to eight minutes. Uh, here, probably you'd want to use succinylcholine because of its fast onset. However, interestingly, the dose of rocuronium can also be increased to have a faster onset compared to succinylcholine, so just keep that in mind. Our next consideration is the route of excretion. This is important because any impairment of excretion will affect the duration of action of the drug and the drug half-life. To use two common examples, firstly, rocuronium relies heavily on biliary excretion and its action may be prolonged in patients with renal impairment. And other drugs like succinylcholine relies heavily on plasma cholinesterases for elimination. Therefore, in patients with advanced liver or kidney disease, you might want to not use rock as in as such as high doses. So you want to be careful with how you dose it. And another good example is with succinylcholine in patients with a deficiency called pseudocholinesterase deficiency. Here, there is a deficiency in the plasma cholinesterase that acts to break down succinylcholine, which can actually lead to prolonged muscle paralysis. You can see here if a patient with a pseudocholinesterase deficiency will have a prolonged muscle paralysis following succinylcholine administration. And so if you see a patient that's this paralysis is prolonged compared to normal, you might want to think, hey, maybe they have a pseudocholinesterase deficiency. And in clinical practice, these patients may actually need to be mechanically ventilated until the effects wear off. Now that connects nicely to our final point. As with any drug, neuromuscular blockers have side effects and contraindications. Let's illustrate this with succinylcholine. Generally, rocuronium has found to be fewer side effects than succinylcholine, just as a rule of thumb. And some of these side effects can include things like possible hypertension and maybe a skin rash. Um, However, it's also the most common cause of anaphylaxis in the operating room. Let's go through the four H's that cover the side effects and contraindications of succinylcholine. These are malignant hyperthermia, hyperkalemia, high ocular pressure, and higher post-op muscle pain. Starting with malignant hyperthermia, this has to be said first because it is an absolute contraindication to using sucks and is a life-threatening anesthetic emergency. Briefly, malignant hyperthermia, or MH, is primarily an autosomal dominant disorder. 
that once exposed to succinylcholine or any volatile anesthetic, there is an uncontrollable contraction of skeletal muscle that leads to life-threatening hypercatabolic state and an increase in body temperature. The next thing is hyperkalemia. Succinylcholine causes small transient increases in potassium, and this is usually not a problem for healthy patients. However, for patients with a potassium above 5.5, succinylcholine should not be used. To make this list make sense, let's think of situations where you could have an increased density of acetylcholine receptors um, or extrajunctional acetylcholine receptors, which could lead to greater depolarization. Number one, this would include extensive third-degree burns. Number two, this would be nerve damage, muscular atrophy, or upper motor neuron lesions. A third example is severe intra-abdominal infections. And a fourth example is severe closed head injury. And so succinylcholine should not be used in these cases. Let's talk about the third side effect now, high ocular pressure. Essentially, you want to avoid the use of this in patients uh, with this type of injury because it would disrupt the globular integrity. Finally, let's talk about the fourth side effect or contraindication of succinylcholine, higher post-op muscle pain. Post-op myalgias following succinylcholine administration is thought to be associated with the fasciculations that occur during the onset of the block. Again, let's think about the mechanism of a succinylcholine. It causes depolarization at the neuromuscular junction, and so it's like a patient just went for a big workout. These can sometimes be avoided with pre-administration of a low-dose non-depolarizing agent before giving succinylcholine. All right, and that wraps up our episode, but we wouldn't leave you guys without a quick summary just to tie everything together. So to remember, skeletal muscle contraction works by sending an action potential down the nerve fibers to the neuromuscular junction, which causes acetylcholinesterase release and ultimately muscle contraction. Neuromuscular blocking agents act by interfering with this acetylcholine signaling mechanism. The two types of neuromuscular blocking agents are depolarizing and non-depolarizing. Non-depolarizing agents block the ACH receptor, while depolarizing agents bind and depolarize the acetylcholine receptor for a prolonged period of time, preventing acetylcholine activation and causing paralysis. Succinylcholine, a depolarizing agent does not have a reversal agent, while non-depolarizing agents like rocuronium are typically reversed with neostigmine and glycopyrrolate. And for rocuronium and vecuronium, there's another very cool agent called sugamidex. And finally, when choosing a neuromuscular blocker, consider the duration of intubation, the duration of induction, the route of excretion, and potential adverse reactions and contraindications. Thanks for turning, tuning into our episode on neuromuscular blocking agents. We hope you learned a thing or two that you can take with you for the next time you're in the OR. This episode was written by myself and edited by Gwen Lovestead and Dr. Jordan Album. Before we end off, we'd like to thank our other content editors, Dr. Sean Jha, Dr. Nick Timmerman. This podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of Dr. Daniel Cordovani. And as always, stay tuned for updates on our website and on our Twitter and Instagram accounts where you can find us at, at Airwave Podcasts. And if you like what we do, give us a rating or some comments on our podcast's 
hosting platforms like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And until next time, keep working hard, stay healthy, stay safe, take some nice deep breaths, and count back from 10.